This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is sponsored by Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Midwestern's 81-hour residential Master of Divinity degree offers a complete foundation for a lifetime of fruitful ministry. For more information, visit mbts.edu mdiv. You had this unarticulated logic of, let me, let me worship some other gods too. Let me diversify. I don't know how much I can really trust you, God. I don't know that I can really trust you with my whole heart. So I'm going to worship some other gods. You fashioned a golden calf. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, What's Your Golden Calf?, was preached by Justin Buzzard at Garden City Church in Silicon Valley, California, on June the 24th, 2018. The text is Exodus chapter 32. Listen now to Justin Buzzard on What's Your Golden Calf? We are going to talk today about the biggest problem in your life, the biggest problem in our church. I hope that by the end of this message, you come to agree that this is the biggest problem in your life. Uh, where we, We've been in Exodus, and the whole section we've been in, the last 10 to 15 chapters or so, Moses has been up on the mountain as we've been going through the Ten Commandments, the instructions on the tabernacle, the instructions on the priesthood. Moses has been up on the mountain, but the people have been down below at the foot of the mountain, and a very different reality is going on down there. And as we come to this chapter today, chapter 32 in Exodus, you can start turning there. We are not prepared for this. This is sudden. This is shocking. And this is so relevant. This sermon today, what we're talking about, this text, it is about you. You're going to be tempted as you listen to it to say, oh, my, my coworker really needs to hear this. My spouse, my roommate, this person in my life group, I really hope they're listening right now. Uh, but we are, we are talking about you. We are talking about your heart and what God wants to say to you today. So Exodus chapter 32, would you stand for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read the first uh, 24 verses of this chapter. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods. Everybody say, make us gods. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath Everybody say wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. 
But Moses implored the Lord his God and Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, why did this pe- what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any of you have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. You can be seated. We'll look at today's text in, in three parts. Uh, first, making idols. Second, destroying idols. And third, destroying idolatry. So first, making idols. Uh, verse 1, the text starts with, the, it's, it uses this word delayed. It said Moses delayed up on the mountain. Uh, God is not operating according to the nation of Israel's timeline. Moses has been up there a long time. They're starting to get anxious. What is what is going on? Moses has, has delayed. The nation of Israel has not yet learned that life is not miracles every day. Because recently that's what they've been experiencing. The, the plagues, the deliverance through the Red Sea, the manna. And, and now this is kind of different. They've not yet learned that patience, uh, trust... Trusting God when you can't see what God is up to, that that is central to a mature person, to a mature disciple. So they give in to this temptation, this very human temptation to create a God for themselves, to create an idol, a God that would be more manageable, that they can see, that they can put their hands on, that they can handle. In verse 1, we see that kind of this mob of sorts gathers to Aaron. And you could translate that preposition too as the word against. And I think that gets better at the sense of what's going on here. There's this mob, there's a group of leaders within Israel who are against Aaron, uh, probably, probably violent, and they say to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And let's, let's think about the context that is shaping this. Uh, think, think about the past that is shaping these, these people and what they're saying. They've spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt, 400 years surrounded, saturated by Egyptian culture, which is polytheistic, which worships many different gods. So, so they're rooted in that past. And now let's think about their present. 
They're present. They're scared. They're anxious. Moses has been gone. He's been up on that mountain for who knows how long. Has it been weeks? What's, what's going on? He's been up there a long time. And they're going to, the guy, our leader is, is, we don't know what happened to him. We, we, we think he's gone. That's the present. And then their future, remember where they're going. They're going to be going into the promised land, but, but they don't know how to get there. And it's unknown and it's scary. And there's, there's other nations that are warring against them. So their past, present, and their future combined to make them give in to this desire to want to worship another God. They, they articulate this logic. Hey, we, we need to make some gods. We need some new gods. We, we need to diversify. We've, yeah, Yahweh, yeah, we, we've seen what he can do. We trust him, but we don't know what he's been up to these last couple of weeks. We needed to diversify a little bit, put some trust in some, some other gods. And so they go to Aaron. They go, they go to the high, they go to the high priest. I've been talking about Aaron. They go to the high priest and they say, can you do this for us? He says, okay. He says, okay. Now he might've been under some, some duress. They might've been violent, this mob, but no matter what, the, you can't let Aaron off the hook. He, he says, okay. He says, bring me the gold that you've got. And he takes this gold, he melts it down and he turns it into a golden calf. Uh, now this was a symbol in the ancient Near East. This was com- a common idol in the ancient Near East, a golden calf. Uh, we don't know the size of this golden calf. Was it, was it really large? Was it kind of bigger than this piano, a big thing? Was it maybe a smaller size that you could kind of hold in your, in your arm? Um, as I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about, you know those people, and sorry, you might be one of these people, but they carry their, you know, your little dog around. They have like a little dog. The, you see them in airports. You see them like in malls. You see them, they've got their little dog, and they're just kind of petting that little dog. I mean, that's kind of how I'm picturing how I want you to kind of picture and imagine the golden calf as we work our way through the message. This valuable, precious thing to you. You just kind of tuck in your arm. You kind of stroke it. Give it a lot of attention. Give it a lot of love. It's very valuable, very important to you. They've got this golden calf. And then they've got this mantra. These, O Israel, are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So while Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the people are down at the bottom of the mountain breaking the Ten Commandments. Breaking the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Breaking the second commandment, you shall make no graven images. Breaking the third commandment, you shall not use my name in vain, because the Lord's name, Yahweh, is used in vain with these false gods. And breaking the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. This golden calf did not bring them out of the land of Egypt. And they've effectively made Aaron the, the priest of their new religion. This new religion of let's worship Yahweh and the golden calf, the synchristic mix. Let's, let's, let's worship these, these multiple gods. Aaron says, yeah, let's, let's build an altar now for the golden calf. Let's have a feast tomorrow. Let's have a big, let's have a big party. This is the guy you thought you could trust. Aaron, Aaron, the high priest, the guy you thought you could trust. Like, I cannot imagine a worse thing happening to the nation of Israel. I cannot imagine a worse chapter showing up as we work our way through this narrative in the book of Exodus. This is really, this is really bad. But remember, this message, this text is about, it's about you. This is about you. It's not just about Israel. This is about you. And this is about your, your biggest problem. Somewhere along the way in your story, you also, you know, you might not have articulated the logic, but you had this unarticulated logic of, let me, let me worship some other gods too. Let me diversify. I don't know how much I can really trust you, God. I don't know that I can really trust you with my whole heart. So I'm going to worship some other gods. You fashioned a golden calf that you can carry right here and 
stroke and give a lot of attention to. Idolatry is a major issue in the Bible. It's a major issue in the human heart. Here's what an idol is. An idol is anything, anything that is more important to you than God. An idol is anything that is more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that makes you go, oh, I've got to have this. Unless I have this, I'm not going to be okay. I'm not going to feel like my life's worthwhile. I'm not going to be at peace. I have to have this. An idol can be a good thing that you turn into a God thing. And I want to convince all of you in this room, those of you who are Christians and those of you who are not Christians, I want to convince all of you that this is your biggest problem. And some of you right now are saying, no, this is not my biggest problem. And you're saying that probably for two reasons. One reason, you have a bunch of surface problems. You're saying to me right now, no, my biggest problem is this, uh, this, this financial pressure I'm under, or this, this difficult relationship and this conflict that's going on. That's my biggest problem. But you, there, there's a deeper root system going on. There's deeper roots, deeper problems that you need to attend to than that surface problem. And the second reason is most of us are pretty blind to our idolatry. All of us are blind to it. We need the Lord and we need people to point out these blind spots, to point out the idolatry in our lives if we're going to see it and own it and, and repent of it. So um, you know, for those of you who are like, I'm not a believer, I'm not a Christian here today, I, I don't buy this idolatry thing. Okay, well, don't, don't take my words for it. Uh, we've been talking about celebrity suicides. This suicide happened a while ago now, at 10, 15 years ago. But the novelist David Foster Wallace, a few weeks before his suicide, he was not a Christian. He said this. He wrote this. I've shared this quote before. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious things about these forms of worship is they're unconscious, they are default settings. What what David Foster Wallace is saying is we have this default setting in our heart as a human to worship. And if that default setting is not set on the living God, it's going to get set onto the golden calves we carry and hold and worship. I think idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. I want you to wrestle with that statement. Idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. It's not as simple as, oh, I just chose to break that commandment or commit that sin. There's a deeper worship, a deeper idolatry, something awry with these default settings, with this root system. That's why we do anything wrong. Uh, Four root idols we talk about here at Garden City. My wife told me this week, she goes, you haven't talked about those in a while. You should talk about them. I'm going to talk about them. Four root idols. Let me, let me talk about these. We'll have a slide for, for these. Um, life only has meaning or I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by fill in the blank. That's an approval idolatry. A lot of us have that at the core of how we're, how we're wired. Or life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasurable experience, a particular quality of life. That's a comfort idolatry. Or I am able to get mastery over my life in the area of blank. Then life has a meaning. That's a control idol. 
That's where I really struggle. Uh, I have power and influence over others. Power idolatry. Those four root idols, there's probably one of those that your heart gravitates to, gravitates to the most. And if you've not identified that in your life, if you're not convicted by any of these, I've got kind of some more I'm going to read that stem out of these four root idols. Um, this comes from Tim Keller. Uh, he's got about 20 of these. I'm just giving, giving you about seven of them. Life only has meaning or only have worth if I'm highly productive and I'm getting a lot done. Work idolatry. If I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work. An achievement idolatry, closely related. Or if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. A materialism idolatry. Or it could look very different. Life only has meaning and worth if a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in. An inner ring idolatry. Or if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. A relationship idolatry. Life only has meaning if I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities. A religion idolatry. Or if I'm hurting, if I'm in a problem, only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. A suffering idolatry. There's many more I could have, could have shared, but our heart can attach itself to anything. I mean, the Israelites did it with a golden calf. We can do it with anything. Suffering, religion, money, whatever, whatever it is. And here's the problem. Most churches, most life groups, most friendships, most marriages, most family systems never expose the idolatry going on in someone's heart and never deal with it. And what ends up happening is you end up keeping that idolatry firmly intact, work idolatry, relationship idolatry, whatever it is, and you slap some Jesus on top, just this Jesus sort of coating that inner deep idolatry is never eclipsed with, never expelled with the presence of Jesus. And it creates a very superficial Christian, where Jesus is not reigning in their heart, but idolatry is reigning in their heart. We care deeply here about having this be part of our culture, talking about this, wanting to root these idols out. I mean, it's it's job review season here at Garden City. I I just did reviews on all of our staff here. The elders just did their review on me. And this is how we talk in like reviews. The review on me, I mean, there's an area in there like, hey, Justin, watch this. This is part of kind of the control idol, idol in your life. Be sure you're aware of this and see this and don't let that, you know, have too much sway over you. And we care about this. I mean, our membership handbook, we get into this. We don't do pre, we do premarital counseling. We get into, get into this. We, we want all of our elder teams, staff teams, deacon teams, our members to be aware of idolatry in their life so that Jesus is getting the glory that's his due. What is your golden calf? I mean, maybe you, maybe you're not carrying it up here, but I mean, maybe you're kind of holding it down here. Maybe you're not giving it lots of attention right now. Maybe you haven't kind of stroked it in a while, but it's down here is your kind of golden calf. What is your golden calf? The sermon's about us. It's about our biggest problem. Let's talk number two about destroying idols. God hates idolatry. He hates idolatry because God is jealous for you. He's jealous for you to know him. He's jealous for you to, to walk in freedom with him. He's jealous for your flourishing. He's jealous for his glory. This is why John, at the end of the book of John, he says, little, the last sentence of the, of the book of 1 John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He wants to kind of sum up his whole message with this final last point. Keep yourself from idols because idols are so dangerous. Keep yourself from idols. So Yahweh in our text says to Moses, go down there. 
Because this is, a, they've quick, the people have quickly turned aside from me. They're stiff-necked people. My wrath is hot. Now I'm going to consume them and I'll, and I'll start over with you. You'll be my remnant. I'll start over with you and I'll build a great nation with you. Pretty much, maybe not all, most heresies start with, stem from a removal of God's wrath. Trying to get rid of the wrath of God. Let's get rid of this attribute of who God is. Let's get rid of his wrath. Uh, so there's, there's no hell, whatever, whatever heresy you might want to think of. It's, it stems often from getting rid of the wrath of God. Wanting to tame God. Wanting to de-God God. And you want a God, though, of wrath. You want a God whose wrath burns hot. Otherwise, there's no justice. Many of this week, you saw the news. You're like, what's happening at the border? Children getting separated from parents. How, how do I do something? How do I step in? This is wrong. This is unjust. You want a God who's a God of justice, who brings justice to what is broken in our world. You don't want to get rid of God's wrath. So Moses, this is, this is a text where Moses really develops as a pastor. You know, he, he's put in place to shepherd the people of God, to be, to be a pastor to the nation of Israel. He really develops here. He's, he's really growing here. I think that's the whole point of the prayer that ensues. He's in prayer with God, and he argues with God in prayer. Uh, the first argument is a question. Uh, why, God, why would you have this wrath against your people? These are your people. They're your people. You care about them, God. Second argument is also a question. Why would you, why would you destroy them? Because what would the Egyptians say? The Egyptians would say, what, what, who is this God? What was he doing? He just brought them out just to have them killed? He's saying your reputation's at stake. It's not just your people that are at stake. It's your reputation, your glory, God, that is at stake. What are you doing? And then his third thing is he says directly to God, turn away from your wrath. Like, don't re- relent, from, relent from this. Remember your covenant to your people, to Abraham and your people. Remember your covenant. The result of that prayer, the result of that pastoral arguing with God, is that God relents from his disaster that he was going to bring on the nation of Israel. And you could say that's a testimony to the power of prayer, and it is. I think this prayer, though, is mainly here to reveal the character growth in Moses. It's, it's God, I think, in a dialogue with Moses, and it's showing Moses' development of an increasingly godly character. So, the prayer happens, and Mo- Moses journeys down, the, journeys down the mountain. He's been up on this mountain for a long time. He's got, the, he's got the two tablets, the, the Ten Commandments. And as he heads down the mountain, he first hears it. Joshua, his assistant, who was further down the mountain, tells him what's going on and first hears this, this singing. And Moses knows, okay, that's not the sound of victory. That's not the sound of... There's, there's like a party going on. Then he gets down there, and it's not that he hears it. He sees it. He sees the golden, the golden calf. And immediately, now, now it's Moses' wrath that is burning hot. And Moses takes the two tablets, he takes the Ten Commandments that, that were written with the finger of God, and he takes them and he, and he slams them on the ground and they shatter. And that's symbolic of the fact that this covenant has just been broken by the nation of Israel. And then Moses does something very strange. You, you, you read it and it's, it's very strange. Uh, but it's actually really wise. It's, this is really good pastoring that Moses is doing in verse 20. Chapter 32, verse 20. Look at, notice the verbs. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to a powder, scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. What's, what's going on there? You must expose and destroy a person's idol. 
You've got to expose this idol in a, in a person's life. And you want to see that idol in their life destroyed. And so what Moses does, it's, it's pretty genius, actually. This exposes the folly of their worship. See this thing, this golden calf you're worshiping? I'm, I'm going to melt it down. And this golden calf that you worship, he throws it in the water, scatters it, and has the people drink it, and it, and it tastes horrible. This thing that you were giving your love, your affection, your delight to, that you held up as so valuable, it tastes horrible, and it is painful to digest. And then later, when it is expelled from their body, he's saying, look, this is what you put your trust in. That God let you down. It's a method of the people owning their sin, owning their idolatry. You cannot change unless you are aware of this area in your life of sin, of idolatry that needs changing. People cannot change unless they are aware of their idolatry and unless they take ownership of their idolatry. You must be aware. And I've been, I'm praying as I preach. Some of you are not aware of idolatry in life. All of us could be more aware of various root systems of idolatry in our life. Would God make us aware so we could be free? You have to be aware. You have to own. So we define discipleship here as truth and love transferred through relationship. Okay, so we like that definition. That's great. Truth and love transferred through relationship. We're, we're, we're all about relationship here. We love each other here. We love this definition. We love living it until it gets to idolatry. Because if we're really transferring truth through relationship, that means we're going to poke each other in the idols. We're going to poke each other in the idols, and that's not going to feel good. That means we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna slap that calf out of a person's arm that they're, they're holding it so tightly. Just here's my golden calf. Here's my golden calf. We're, we're, we're trying to rip that calf out because we love that person. We care for that person. We're, we're jealous for God's glory. We want to be a church that's increasingly like seeing our idolatry and not being entangled by it and being freed up from it. So we're going to poke each other in the idols. But that's not very fun. And many of you are too afraid to ever do that to someone. Many of you are too afraid to ever have someone say that to you, to ever hear that. Oh, this might be an issue of idolatry in my life. And so we just can keep stroking that golden calf. Good news is God... God, God, God cares so much for his church. He cares so much for us. He cares so much. He's, he's too jealous for you. He's too jealous for his glory to let that just go. He won't just tolerate idolatry. And so he is about a plan of shaking that idol loose. He's about a plan of destroying that idolatry in your life. And sometimes he makes us drink the consequences of that idol. And let me nuance what I, what I, what I said here. Uh, sometimes it's not that God's going to destroy the idol directly. Sometimes God will let that idol destroy you. If you're going to be so fixated on, I've got to just hold on to this golden calf. This is so important to me. I can't let it go. I can't surrender. I can't repent of it. God just might let that golden calf become so weighty, so overwhelming, so stressful that it destroys you. It happens. 
that idol that you love doesn't love you back. And it's the biggest problem in your life. And I want us to be free of this idolatry in our lives. So Moses, what happens next is, remember, he's Aaron's his brother. So now there's a brother-to-brother conversation. Moses goes to Aaron and he says, like, brother, what, what happened here? Like, what, what, I was gone for a little bit. I come down. Like, what, what happened? And Aaron says, well, you know the people. You know that they're set on evil. So I took some gold. I threw it in the fire. And like, I don't know. This calf came out. <laughs> and it's just, it's humorous. It's humorous because it, I mean, he's taking, it's, it's so clearly he's to blame. Like he, he's just, he, he's not taking any ownership. He's not taking any responsibility. It's Genesis 3 all over again. Adam, well, it's the woman that you gave me. It's her, it's her fault. No ownership. Uh, he's just pointing the fingers at everyone else. Remember when you point the finger at someone else, you've got three fingers pointed back at you and these fingers are pointed back at Aaron and he just doesn't even see his guilt. See, our, our idols have a, a stubborn root system. They can... They can tend to grow back. I mean, you fast forward several hundred years in the history of the nation of Israel. First Kings chapter 12, verse 28, you read about one of the kings. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Hundreds of years later, a king of the nation of Israel is making golden calves and worshiping them. And America has its old own golden calf too. Wall Street, the bull. And so many of us fall into this temptation in Silicon Valley to worship this golden calf of success, money, and achievement. So the idol, the root system strong, can grow back. So maybe destroying the idol isn't enough. Maybe something more is needed. So let's look number three at destroying idolatry. Not destroying the idol, but destroying idolatry. The biggest problem is not the idol. The biggest problem is the idolatry, the idolater, this default setting of the human heart that has gone astray. And so what happens next is Moses and the Lord together go and see to it that 3,000 people, this is part of the text I didn't read, that 3,000 people are killed in the nation of Israel. I don't think those are 3,000 random people. I think that in all likelihood, this is kind of this leadership group, this mob that wanted to see this golden calf built that first approached Aaron. Uh, They're the most accountable for this sin. And if you think that's harsh, these people get killed. Well, it only gets ratcheted up in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So if we're a habitual idolater that like refuses to see these idols in our lives, refuses to repent, refuses to be transformed by Jesus, saying you have, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So these 3,000 people are killed, and the next day Moses goes before the people, and he says to all the people, listen, you're all guilty. You've, you've, you've all sinned. And then he, then he does this. Look at verses 30 through 33 with me. Verses 30 through 33. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. This is 
I mean, Moses is just continuing to grow and develop as a leader, as a pastor. He is saying something pretty big here. He, he's facing a dilemma. Here, here's the dilemma. On the one hand, you have the holiness, the justice of God that needs to be upheld. And on the other hand, you have the guilt of the people, the idolatry of the people. And, and, and Moses sees two, he, he's faced with this dilemma. He sees these two choices that he doesn't like. He's, I want to, I want to see God's justice upheld. But if his justice is upheld, these people who I love will be destroyed. And then he's saying, well, I love these people. And I want, I, I want their guilt to be passed over. I love these people, but then I'm compromising the justice of God, the holiness of God. I don't like these two choices. So he comes up with a perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for these people. He comes up with a third way. God, blot me, blot innocent me out of your, out of your book. T- take me instead. Take me instead. What, what is this book that he's talking about? I believe this is the first appearance of a book that shows up throughout the Bible. One of the last appearances is Revelation twenty fifteen. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You want your name, anyone in this room whose name is like, my name is not in that book tonight. Your name can be in that book tonight. It can be in that book tonight. Just come to Jesus tonight. We want your name in that book. This church is here so that the city's names would just be in this, in this book. We want to spend eternity with, with these people here who we, who we love. Your name can get in this book tonight. Moses is saying, God, I understand the dilemma. Take me instead. My, my, my life for the, my life for the many blot me out of your book. It's like, you know, one, one of the horrible shootings that happened a couple months ago in Florida, Parkland, Florida. Um, Aaron Feiss was a football coach on the scene as the shooters going around and he, and he ran forward and he shielded a bunch of students with his, with his body. And he went to that shooter and he's saying, take, take me instead. G- gave up his life. So these other lives could be rescued, could, could go free. That's anything that really moves us in great literature, great movies. It's these stories of substitution, someone sacrificing their life for people that they love and care about. But God's answer is very interesting here. God, God says no. God says no. I'm going I'm to hold the guilty guilty. Why? Because because this is the heart of the gospel right here. Why is God saying no to this? Well, it's because Moses is not a suitable substitute. Moses is not without sin. He's, he, he didn't sin in this way. He didn't do this whole idolatry thing with the golden calf. But he's, he's got his whole list of, of sin and idolatry in his life. He's not, he's not a suitable substitute. What is needed is a, a better Moses who, who's got the same heart of like me for them, take me instead, but is also blameless and can therefore handle the weight of your sin and the weight of the wrath of God. So I'm going to say something right now that is not politically correct, not popular in Silicon Valley, like not like your your friends probably hate this. Your coworkers think it's ridiculous and like archaic and not true, but here is the reality of the Bible that we stand upon as a people, that we stand upon as a church. There is one God. He's he's the creator of the universe, and he created you. And the living God has every right to destroy you, to destroy me, because of these golden calves 
that we have worshipped, that we have given our hearts, our allegiance to instead of him. He has every right to do that. He's God. And he's a God of wrath. And he upholds justice. But there's more to this God than, than his wrath. There's more to his character. There's more to, there's more to who he is. There's more to how he, he operates. And, and another huge part of how he operates is, is the living God has this unstoppable love for his people. And as the Bible develops, what you eventually get in the New Testament is you get God himself saying what Moses said, saying, take me instead. You, you have the second person of the Trinity, Jesus saying, take me, my life for theirs. And the, the one who was deserving of worship, the one who deserved to be bowed down to and worshiped, he's the one who gets ground down to powder. He's the one who gets blotted out of the book. He's the one who receives the wrath of God. He did that because he's passionate that you would be forgiven, that you would be freed, that your friends would be forgiven and freed of this idolatry that's captured your heart. So what do we do with this? I want to give us three ways to apply this in closing. Here's the first way. See and own and repent of the idolatry in your heart. This sermon's about you. Quit, quit thinking about your friend that needs to hear this. See and own and repent of that idolatry, that golden calf in your heart, in, in your arm. And if you're sitting here going, I don't really think I have an idol problem. I dare you to pray and to ask God to show you. Hey, God, show me any idolatry that's in my heart. Show, show it to me this week. Expose, make me more alert to this. I mean, this is a lifelong journey of repentance here, but would you wake me up to more of this this week? And I dare you to ask a good friend who really knows you and who really loves you. Ask them about this. See what they'd say. Second, just trust God. Like tr tr quit trusting in idols, trust God. And I know when I say trust God, you hear that through the lens of your own experience and the different things that you have gone through where people have let you down and have broken your trust. Idols have let you down and broken your trust. Like I say, trust God. And you've got that whole story shaping that all of us come to faith with some kind of injury to our ability to trust, but you can, you can really trust God. He, you can, he is worthy of your trust. You can put all of your, all your trust onto him. And he, and he won't let you down. His plans are, are beyond your plans and he might order your life in ways that you would have never expected. In fact, he will, but you can trust him. He loves you. He is for you. Third, be a disciple maker here. Be a truth teller here. Don't, don't polish people's idols. A lot of that goes on in churches. It's not good. Just, hey, let me kind of just take that idol. Let me just kind of polish that a little bit for you. Let me just, let me keep your idol intact. Let me, I don't, I don't want to poke that thing. I want, I want to keep everything, everything safe and okay here. Don't do that. We're disciple makers. We transfer truth and love through relationship. So as long as you're doing it in love, as long as it's appropriate, like point out what's going on. Like this friend of yours, this person you're journeying with, this person in your life that you care about, don't polish their idols because you love them, because you care about them. 
And you can slap that calf. Don't just stroke that thing. It's not loving to not tell the truth. We might need to repent of that here. Church, let's pray. Because we can't do any of this on our, on our own. We can't solve our biggest problem, uh, idolatry. God, God's got to move. The Holy Spirit's got to move. So would you, would you pray with me? Living God, we read Exodus 32, and it's crazy. And then we look at our lives, and we look at our heart, and we look at our community, and we see that this goes on with us too. And we too are guilty of making gods, of trusting in ridiculous things, of putting them before you. So God, would you make us more aware of idolatry in our lives? Would you convict us? Would you help us to be humble and to own the idolatry in our lives? And uh, be with us, Spirit, as you purge idolatry from our lives and you help us walk in the freedom of following you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.